1: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the statewide mandate has expired, but some local leaders are still requiring residents to mask up. And UMMC conducts over 200 transplants per year. We examine how these life-changing procedures have been affected by the pandemic. Then the president called for supporters to watch the polls on Election Day. But how legal is the practice? Plus, in our book club, 47 poets associated with Mississippi are showcased with the aim of cementing poetry's place in today's culture. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. New coronavirus cases and hospitalizations have increased this week in Mississippi, and health officials have concerns about residents not wearing masks in public. Last week, Governor Tate Reeves chose to allow his mask mandate to expire, but some local officials are choosing to extend orders within their jurisdiction. Tupelo Mayor Jason Shelton has mandated face coverings be worn in public until November 11th. He tells our Kobe Vance he's following recommendations of local Local health experts.
4: We have uh, tried to follow the governor's orders, um, you know, since he's gotten involved in COVID. You know, we, we started our response here in Tupelo on uh, February 28th, and I think, um, you know, I don't sometimes spring or early summer, the governor uh, began to be a little more proactive with COVID. Uh, the right thing for the state of Mississippi is that we have uniform, consistent guidelines all, all throughout the, the state. Uh, but, you know, uh, the governor, against the advice of the healthcare profession, against the advice of, the, you know, the medical community, the scientists, um, you know, the CDC, uh, every, uh, you know, agency that's working on this, uh, so the governor's gone against their advice, so we have chosen to follow the science, uh, to follow the advice of our healthcare professionals, uh, and continue the mask mandate here uh, in the city of Tupelo
5: has it helped slow the spread of the disease in your area
4: you know I, I think that it has um, you know you see from the uh, just the absolute disregard for safety in the White House you see how a super spreader event can um, you know affect an entity and organization you, you've got uh, we see more cases now in the White House alone than in some countries in the world, and that's because of a lack of um, a, a refusal to wear masks and follow the basic science of um, dealing with COVID-19. Um, you know, we have uh, home. We're home. Tupelo is home to the nation's largest rural hospital, North Mississippi Medical Center, right here, and we're fortunate that uh, you know we don't we don't have to call. National or state healthcare experts. We've got a wonderful medical community right here in Tupelo. Uh, we've been in contact with them. We have a citizen-led uh, COVID task force. Uh, you know, we're in constant contact with those groups. Um, you know, so we uh, we talk to the healthcare professionals, talk to our COVID task force, and uh, that's why we've chosen to continue it here in Tupelo.
5: And how's perception been? Um, you know, this is seemingly such more of a partisan issue than it used to be.
4: It is extremely unfortunate. You know, that really has a real-world impact. You know, we saw the president's debate. Uh, The president ridiculed Joe Biden for wearing a mask. The president kind of came across as anti-mask. That was the debate on Tuesday. Uh, The next day, you see his acolyte, Governor Reeves, do away with the mask requirement in Mississippi. That leads to people in the city of Tupelo uh, refusing to wear a mask, and they're going to end up in the hospital or, um, you know, worse.
1: Jason Shelton is the mayor of Tupelo. Warren County has seen a large decrease in cases and has one of the lowest COVID-19 test positivity rates in the state at 1.4%. In Vicksburg, masks are required when in public places where social distancing cannot be followed. Mayor George Flagg says he believes it has helped keep new daily coronavirus cases low.
6: We believe that the mask uh, or the cover of face uh, mitigates uh, the spread of the virus. So if we're going to mitigate the spread of the virus, we need to do everything in our power to try to do so. So we are on the inside of any uh, building in Bixby. We're asking that you cover your face, wear a mask, if that's what you want to call it, uh, and practice social distance. If you're on the outside, we require you to wear a mask, but if you can practice social distance, you don't have to do it.
5: And, you know, the, uh, the governor recently discontinued his. Well, why did your city choose to continue the mask mandate as the governor took away the statewide order?
6: Well, I think the governor was looking out for us in the best of the whole state. I think it is incumbent on me, as mayor of the city, in which I was elected as mayor and not governor, to make sure that my city continues to reduce the number of COVID uh, cases in my city. And we're doing a great job with it. Uh, we're averaging about. Three to four, we continue to bring it down, and I think reason why we're bringing them down and we're we'll minimize their death is because of the fact that the people in Vicksburg are practicing social distance anyway in May.
5: Is there anything else about the mass mandate uh, in your city that you, you'd like uh, residents to understand, or uh, maybe clear up some uh, just some some things that they're not they're not fully aware about?
6: Well, I just think in Vicksburg we're complying, and everybody that I see whether business up uh, from the private sector, up on the public sector, is doing what we need to do to make ourselves safe. Okay. Thank you
5: so much, Mayor Flags, for talking with me today.
6: All right. Thank you.
1: Other areas with mask mandates include Octibaha County, the cities of Jackson, Meridian and Hattiesburg. The expiration of the statewide mask mandate is generating some concern among healthcare leaders. State health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the state's equilibrium is unraveling. Vice Chancellor of the University of Mississippi Medical Center Luanne Woodward has recently stated she would have liked to see the mandate extended. Aside from being the only Tier 1 trauma center, UMMC also performs more than 200 transplants a year. Transplantation specialist Dr. Christopher Anderson says the pandemic has presented additional challenges for transplant recipients and doctors.
2: If a transplant patient contracts COVID, they are higher risk of uh, developing complications from that uh, compared to someone who's not immunosuppressed. And uh, we have struggled with that somewhat. Um, we've given all of our transplant patients uh, education on, on um, how to prevent themselves from getting the disease as best they can. And, and you know, in some instances, uh, we, we've had patients who've contracted it, and, and unfortunately, we've had a few who died from it. Are there any
1: transplants that can be delayed or are they all urgent?
2: Well, again, no two situations are the same. Um, in general, uh, a kidney transplant in theory could be delayed uh, with the patient uh, on dialysis. But at the same time, if an organ becomes available for that uh, person, um, it, it is a risk-benefit decision at that time. Um, you know the the benefits being, uh, for example, in the instance of kidney, the benefits being coming off dialysis, knowing that you're going to get a transplant, um, knowing that coming off dialysis is going to make you live longer, and versus the risk of, you know, um, certainly months ago, uh, getting transplanted in in a hospital that. Has limited visitation and and uh, lots of COVID patients in it, and and knowing there's a general COVID risk, um, and so it's a it, it's a risk benefit decision each time, and no two patients are the same.
1: It sounds like a tough decision now because we're heading into fall, and some of the um, some of the forecasts have been that there will be increases in cases across the country, not just in Mississippi. But if it comes back to a situation where hospitals, their, you know, bed space is limited, is there, um, is there a separate place? I mean, can patients be separated completely from those who have coronavirus if someone's undergoing a transplant? The,
2: the patients are separated from the coronavirus uh, patients. They're not put on the same hospital floor, they're not cared for by the same nurses. Um- in fact, you, you you might argue that a hospital is a pretty safe uh, place for a patient to be because the hospitals where people are going to be most compliant with um, the protective measures. Um, you know, what I really worry about is, is you know the large community gatherings and um, you know, going shopping for groceries or you know other necessities in, in a less protective environment. And, and I think that's where most of the cases we've seen as a transplant program were acquired. And so a lot of our education is on, on just that, you know, staying out of crowds, social distancing, wearing masks, washing hands, uh, all the same, um, essentially the same advice we give everyone. Um, but it is much more important, um, uh, for a fresh transplant patient to really abide by those, um, those rules.
1: Once someone has had a transplant, are they forever at higher risk for complication? Should they contract the coronavirus?
2: Yes. Uh, they're, they're forever at higher risk of contracting, um, infectious uh, diseases such as coronavirus the most the highest risk though is really in the first three to six months that's when the immunosuppression is the uh, highest and after that when they're uh, sort of in their maintenance immunosuppression period that we run the levels a little lower or we run the doses a little lower and they uh are at a little bit less high risk, but still compared to you and I who are not immunosuppressed, they are at a higher risk. Dr.
1: Christopher Anderson has a specialty in transplant surgery for the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for being with us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Coming up, the president called for supporters to watch the polls on election day, but how legal is the practice? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Wilson Walker, the lady auto
0: mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The 2020 general election is less than four weeks away, and President Donald Trump, who has been sowing doubts into the legitimacy of the election, has called for his supporters to watch the polls.
2: I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it.
1: The practice of poll watching varies from state to state, and watchers usually work for candidates or political parties to observe how the election is being conducted. In Mississippi, the Secretary of State's office requires they be at least 150 feet away from entrances, and only two are allowed inside. Damon Hewitt is with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. He tells our Desiree Frazier the national organization is concerned about poll watchers or others intimidating voters.
3: The intimidation factor uh, is, number one, just from the aura of the notion that there's an organized group of people there to watch you and your community. Uh, when you go to your local voting precinct, uh, your polling place, and you know the people who work there, you know the people who show up to vote because they're often in your neighborhood or in the nearby surrounds, and then you see a number of people who actually aren't from your area or from your neighborhood or that you I haven 't seen before, and they're not official employees there to help uh, people cast their ballot through the through the process uh, if you see a number of those people and they're standing and watching you and taking notes, you will take note of that. It can have an effect sometimes there are people who are trying to electioneer you know pass materials uh, near a polling place uh, there's often a, an official number of feet away from the polling site where those people have to stand that's common, but what's uncommon are, are people who aren't doing that, people who are not there for election administration, but people who are there either to to watch, to leer at people, or to sometimes inappropriately approach them uh, and, and try to get in their way and interfere.
7: Have you seen or are aware of instances of that taking place?
3: Well, in this election cycle, there certainly have been some anecdotal accounts, some of which are still being. Verify, But the point is, over the years, this certainly has taken place. Uh, Quite often, what you see is uh, other actors inappropriately being entangled with that, sometimes even law enforcement uh, being essentially playing a role in that as well. Historically, we've seen it from the height of the civil rights movement, sometimes with uh, disastrous and fatal effects uh, in terms of uh, attacks on uh, people who are advocating for voting rights, or people who are simply trying to cast a ballot. And so I think the historical legacy tells us that we should be very wary anyone whose job it is to, to, to go out to the polls or whose role it is to go out to the polls to try to make it more difficult for people to vote, that's a problem. That's a constriction of democracy, not a broadening of democracy. And that's, frankly, un-American.
7: And so what are you telling people to do in these instances?
3: Well, the first thing is to be aware of your surroundings. If someone approaches you or if someone does not approach you but makes you feel uncomfortable, you have the right to ask who they are and what their role is on the site, and they're supposed to be able to tell you. And if they don't tell you, then that's a red flag. Also, if someone does make you uncomfortable or does try to interfere with your ability to vote, you also have the right to go to the actual poll workers, the people who who actually work, uh, to administer the election, to let them know and document that. But more so, you're not alone on, on site. You can also call the National Election Protection Hotline, which is one eight six six hour vote uh, You can document these inc- incidents. Uh, there's over 21,000 uh, lawyers who've already volunteered to support the effort, and it went up to Election Day and on Election Day to address these kinds of incidents, sometimes through lawsuits, sometimes through a friendly nudge and call to the powers that be to make sure that we get these obstacles out of people's way.
7: Have you had to do that in Mississippi?
3: We certainly have. I mean, there's been a number of incidents in Mississippi over the years from employers who refuse to allow their employees to go and cast a ballot, which certainly uh, has been an issue at times. And Mississippi is also a state, unfortunately, where people have been murdered. Uh, trying to get other people registered or get other people to the polls or get, or just cast their own ballots. And so that historical legacy, which plays out in different forms, every election cycle is one that we can be and have to be ever mindful of. Uh, that's part of our psychic memory as a, as a people. And if we forget those lessons of the past, we're bound to repeat those same mistakes or allow them to happen again.
7: And in your role, if this does happen, How can it be rectified in a way that people still feel that they can vote and not walk away?
3: Sure. And that's that's another great piece of advice is if you do encounter a problem, don't leave the polling site. Don't walk away. You know, chances are you won't have a chance to get back because you'll be busy with your work, with your kids, with the rest of your your busy day, especially in this uh, continuing pandemic environment. Uh, the most important thing is to get help right away from an elect- actual election worker or get help by calling the 866 hour vote election protection hotline. Uh, we can help to intervene on the spot. Uh, we have not just a hotline, but also working with organizations, lawyers, and, and organizers on the ground who are doing nonpartisan work, not affiliated with any party, to make sure that anyone who is eligible to cast a ballot does have a chance to do so. Your best chance of voting is right then and there, not at some point later in the day or in the future.
7: All right. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about this important issue. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Damon Hewitt is with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Coming up in our book club, 47 poets associated with Mississippi are showcased with the aim of creating or cementing, rather, poetry's place in today's culture. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio
3: mpbonline.org slash weather is here to keep you updated to stay safe. As the only statewide radio and television broadcast network, it is our mission that you are informed and prepared before severe weather hits. mpbonline.org slash weather keeps you up to date with the latest weather news and safety tips from the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency and the National Weather Service. To be informed before the storm, visit mpbonline.org slash weather.
1: In Mississippi, the importance of poetry is cemented in today's culture. In the book, Mississippi Poets, author Catherine Savage-Brosman introduces readers to the poets themselves, stressing their versatility and diversity. Her book is both a source of information and a showcase. She tells us that the poets included span many years and work influenced by personal experiences and Mississippi itself.
0: There are a couple born in the 19th century. Faulkner is one of them, very late 19th century. And William Percy is another. He was born somewhat earlier. There might be one or two others, but very few.
1: You also have Mississippians, people born in Mississippi versus those who came
0: to Mississippi. Is there a balance there? As the man named McGinnis, the poet named McGinnis from the outskirts of Jackson said, I paraphrase this now, if it's important in your writing, if it makes a difference in your writing, Mississippi counts for you, you're a Mississippi poet. And he himself is a native, so if he says so, I think we can take it that way. I certainly do. What was involved in your selection process? An enormous lot of reading. (laughs) I know through contact either fairly recent or in the distant past, a couple of these poets and one other who finally did not make the cut. And I began with them, but I did not ask for their advice. I asked for no one's advice in the matter. I had to do the work for myself, but reading about one poet's career, for instance, can lead to other things. And of course, I'm knowledgeable, let's say broadly, about Southern literature. I had to work out of my own base, just work.
1: (laughs) You mentioned William Faulkner and some of the other well-known poets, certainly Natasha Trethewey, who was Mississippi's Poet Laureate as well as the National Poet Laureate, Mississippi Poet Laureate, Beth Ann Fenley, Margaret Walker, Richard Wright. Those are the ones that immediately, when I saw the list, went, well, I know who that one is and I know who that one, but there were quite a few I didn't know. So it's nice to have this resource is there one or several who best illustrate Mississippi itself?
0: In a way, Mr. McKinnis illustrates Mississippi because he is uh he is thoroughly grounded there and has not gone elsewhere. I think that Sterling Plump affords much of the same illustration by somebody who's much older. Uh, he was born around 1940. His base became Chicago, so he's an exiled Mississippian, which gives, of course, a, a perhaps a different perspective. I think that James C., though he did leave the state, I think he is certainly well grounded in Mississippi. Do you have
1: a personal favorite in terms of the poet themselves or a
0: favorite poem of all of the poets? A favorite poem, I, I'm not prepared to answer that. It would take me quite a while of rereading and, and sifting and so on. Because, of course, I like a great many of the poems. Why did I do this? I am devoted to poetry and to the Mississippi poets and, and the project. I hesitate to name people, but I will go to the name of Fisher Fisherworth, partly because I, too, am a woman poet. Of course, there are other women poets in the book, though, as the preface notes, fewer perhaps than one might have expected, but that's what the landscape revealed. I have admiration for her work and a certain amount of empathy or feeling with, in her case. I admire James C.'s work, and I admire James Whitehead, You know, pretty soon I'm going to mention more names than you wish.
1: Catherine Savage-Brosman is the author of Mississippi Poets, A Literary Guide, and I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for doing this. This is very welcome. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio.